All right, it is good to see everybody here today. So this Sunday, um, what we're up to is we're kicking off a new series here at Revolution, and it's what we call our, um, I'm such an English teacher, it's what we call our interlude series of the year, which is an obnoxious term, but what it means is that it's a series that we actually stretch out through the course of 2023, and we revisit it in between all of our main teaching series of the year. So we'll actually have uh, eight total times when we talk about this over the course of the year, but they won't, it's not going to continue next week. It'll be, you know, uh, several weeks, and then we'll, we'll come back to it. But the topic, the subject of this interlude series for the year is the Apostles' Creed. And because it's a new series, there's a fair amount of introductory work for us to do today, as well as an initial point to be made, and we've got a lot of ground to cover in the next half hour. But, as you just experienced, um, I'm not good it's separating what I'm thinking from what I'm doing. And so I'm going to go down a rabbit trail right now that is a terrible choice in terms of time management, but I can't stop myself. The subject um, here is a debate, a roaring debate in the middle of the Kameisho household. And the subject of that debate right now is Hogwarts houses. Um, nothing to do with the Apostles' Creed whatsoever. And also about 20 years late. Like most of you settled this a long time ago. But here's what happening in our house. Um, a thing you might not know about my wife, Meredith, is that she is a Harry Potter super fan. Um, and one of the ways that she expresses her super fandom is by trying to read through all the Harry Potter books with our kids when they get to what I believe she thinks of as an appropriately magical age. I don't know what that means, but it seems to be roughly eight. I don't know. Um, is that connected? Eight? Maybe. Whatever. Um, anyways, we went through all this with our oldest daughter, the one who's sick right now, um, a long time ago when she was younger. And then our middle daughter, Cecilia, um, declared herself like in the middle of the kitchen one day to be a muggle. Um, and said she would not be taking part in any of these shenanigans. And now our son, Graham, who is eight, thus magical, is somewhere in the middle of book four with Meredith. In any case... What happens is when we are in this era, in our home, there is this regular debate at the kitchen table about who belongs to what house, right? And perhaps because of her independence and stubbornness, Cecilia has been labeled a Gryffindor by, by proxy, I guess. I don't know how that works if you're not magical as a being. But anyway, she's a Gryffindor. Our son Graham is apparently a Gryffindor. Evangeline is a Hufflepuff, which is not surprising. And then Meredith is a Ravenclaw, but, but, what, my dear friends, am I? <laughs> Here's the root of the issue, because Meredith says that I'm a Ravenclaw like her, and I see a lot of nodding heads, it's not good, <laughs> because I want to be a Hufflepuff, that's what I want. I'm not a Harry Potter guy, as you probably made several mistakes already here. So I don't fully understand these things. But what I gather, what I gather is that Hufflepuffs are the nicest of all the houses. And that's what I'm chasing. I want to be the nicest. But the Ravenclaws, from what I gather, are the aloof intellectual types. And to be honest, that's what I'm trying to run away from. <laughs> so, all of that cut to last Sunday. Last Sunday, if you were here, I hope what you heard was a compassionate sermon about sharing God's heart and learning to participate 
and the lives and the journeys of others. But that very afternoon, my dear friends, and with no prompting whatsoever, Meredith, who infrequently comments on my sermons under any circumstance, looked me dead in the eyes, and she said, that was a Ravenclaw sermon. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> Terrible. Now, I promise all of that is not a complete waste of time. Partial waste of time, not totally. Nor is all of that a plea for like the huffleheads in the room to like come to my rescue, although you are more than welcome to do that if you want. But here's where it's going. In my mind, my muggle mind, the difference between these two like houses has to do with living and thinking. The difference between living and thinking. And I've spent my whole life, just turned 41 last week, I've spent my whole life thinking. But I've come to a point where I want to do more living. But the truth, of course, right, is that these two things, living and thinking, are more connected. They're more than a little bit connected, right? And in fact, in fact, they kind of depend on one another. So in the series that we're starting this morning, we're talking about the Apostles' Creed. And we need to start here real quick by taking a closer look at what the Apostles' Creed actually is. Now, as with most ancient texts, its origins are a bit murky the more you look into them. Now, the version of the creed that we have dates back at least to the 4th century, but its basic form, its basic structure, can actually be traced to like the mid to late 100s. And it's known as the Apostles' Creed, not because it was written by the actual apostles in the Christian tradition, but because it is considered, and it has long been considered, to be a summary of their original teachings about Jesus and about faith, as those teachings were assembled by the early church leaders who followed them and who learned from them directly. And its purpose, as is the case for all creeds, was to describe essential beliefs, in this case specifically essential Christian beliefs, in, um, in a form that can be easily memorized and then provide an anchor for any Christian's identity. That's what the creed does. It takes the beliefs of, uh, of a group puts them into a memor memorizable form, and then begins to be able to be like easily absorbed and transmitted between the people in the group so everybody's on the same page. Um, its earliest use, the creed's earliest use in the Christian tradition, appears to be as part of the sacrament of baptism. And in this way, it helped Christians who were new to faith and who at the time were scattered all across the Mediterranean world to tie themselves in both to one another and to tie them kind of into this common order. And then over the last 2,000 years, churches in all three branches of Christianity, which is to say Protestants and Catholics and Orthodox, um, have continued to recite this creed for much the same reason. If somebody wants to know exactly what it is that Christians believe, then the Apostles' Creed is designed to provide a consistent answer about the things that are essential. Now there are of course many beliefs that Christians hold that are outside of this creed. Beliefs about baptism and spiritual gifts and church governance and heaven and hell and all sorts of things upon, like, on which people differ. But those beliefs tend to be treated as particular to each branch or congregation or denomination or church. 
So disagreements will arise between everybody, but what is common, what is key, is meant to be here in this text. So, well, it's a bit, we went from Harry Potter to history of ancient creeds. Anyways, let's move on. What is common then, right? What is there in this text? Well, as we're going to see, the creed is organized by what we believe about God, what we believe about Jesus, what we believe about the Holy Spirit, what we believe about the church, and then what we believe about hope. So God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, church, hope. That's the basic structure here. And the idea is that if we can be united on those five things, then despite our differences, we can remain united, at least to some degree, as a church. All right, so that's my five-minute summary of the creed. And I'm sure we're going to go into more detail as the year goes on, but for now, the point here is that that, is, that was Ravenclaw Penny. Ravenclaw Penny is out, right? That was it. <laughs> so now enter unsorted Kenny. What unsorted Kenny wants to know is this. What I want to know is so what? So what? Sitting here in a sometimes comically informal church, halfway across the world from the dirt that Jesus actually walked on in the year of our Lord, 2023. Does this creed matter? Do we need it? Why? Can it help us in any real way? And if so, how? Now, our big topic for this year, the, the thing under which all the other things we're going to talk about in 2023 are, is under, the big topic is discipleship. And over the last three weeks, we have made the case that growing, both as humans and growing as Christians, isn't something that we make happen by our own will. But instead, it's something that happens in us as we live, learn to live with humility and openness towards God. Our job is to be humble and open towards God. Growth is the thing that happens as we dwell in that kind of a place. Now, as we look at the creed, our challenge then, under that kind of idea, our challenge with this text isn't just to learn how to say it. Our challenge is, is, to, have, like what, is to use this text to help us focus on those feelings and that process, the, those feelings of humility and that process of learning to be open. So how does this thing help us do that? And I, and I want to start out by saying this, that none of us, including me, none of us can honestly recite the words of the Apostles' Creed with perfect confidence and conviction, partly because they're confusing, and partly because there are things in there that if you stop and think about them for a minute, you might not fully believe. But the routine of reading those words, of saying them, of experiencing them repeatedly, can do something important. What that routine can do is it can keep us unsettled and eager in our faith. Even better, what that routine can do is it can direct us so that our curiosity is going into productive places. So the reason that we're going to be coming back to this series intermittently throughout the year is because we want to practice leaning into productive curiosity. And we think that the statements of the creed can lead us into that productive curiosity by giving us specific things to think about and wrestle with and ponder over the course of the year. 
But that's all intellectual. So what do, how do we put like Hufflepuff life to this Ravenclaw thing? The answer is that we don't just want to think about whether we know this stuff or believe this stuff. What we want to do is actually talk together about how you put weight on it. How do you live with it and wrestle with it? Our faith grows specifically when we discover that it is capable of withstanding the real weight of our lives. That's what makes our faith grow. And our beliefs, as it turns out, our beliefs are exactly the place where those two questions from earlier about how, what we're thinking and how we're living like come together. Belief is neither a Ravenclaw thing nor a Hufflepuff thing. A belief, and belief is our way of actually engaging with the world, living. It's the anchor for all of this work. So as we turn our attention to this text this morning, that's both where the creed begins, and it's also where we're going to begin with those two words, I believe. I believe. Not we believe, even. But I believe. What we want to explore is not only what the words that follow that statement, I believe, mean, but also how we actually put that weight on them. How do we live in relationship to this statement? So what is it, right? I think I put it in your, in your program there. The creed is composed of these 12 statements of belief, one for each apostle. And the first of them reads as follows. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. So what exactly are we saying when we recite that statement together? And then, what does it mean to believe it? What does it mean to put weight on it? Let's start with what we're saying. We can cover that relatively quickly, right? There are four things in that statement that the creed's asking us to affirm about God. Four points in that sentence. And the first is this. We are affirming that we think God exists. He's there at the beginning. I believe in God. We're affirming that there is somewhere and somehow a God out there. And that's no small thing to say, right? Because, of course, we have no physical proof of it. And we are people in love with data more than just about anything else. The skeptic in the room is already jumping ship, right? Like how... Can I say I believe in something that I don't know for sure? The skeptic's not going to make it more than four words through the creed, and that's okay. But the, and, and I can't believe I'm saying this, but the Ravenclaw answer to the skeptic is this. Their answer would be, but you're putting your faith already in an answer that you don't know one way or the other. You're always putting your weight on some belief or another one. To say there's not, enough, there's not enough evidence for me to believe in God is a way of kind of camouflaging that you believe there is enough evidence for you not to believe in God. And this is a tricky business, right? Both because you can't prove a negative, but that's so what? But also because historically speaking, like the vast majority of human beings who've ever lived like, tend to disagree with you. So you're kind of an outlier on that position. It's no more of a leap to say yes to the God question than it is to say no. And if you're here in the room this morning, I take it you're at least open to option number one, even if you're still on the no side. But that's why the creed starts with it, where why the creed starts where it starts, because that becomes the question upon which everything else hinges. Like if we're not going to get over the bridge to saying I'm willing and I'm open to the idea of believing in a God, 
and like what we believe about that God is irrelevant. So we start here. We're saying that we believe God exists. But point number one doesn't make anybody a Christian, right? What makes a person a Christian depends on what they believe about that God. And those are affirmations two, three, and four here this morning. So what's the second? Well, Crete goes on and says, I believe in God the Father. I believe in God the Father. Now it matters that the Crete goes here next, because the Christian understanding of God is not that he is a disinterested deity or a creator who kind of kick-started the earth and then wandered away to go do some other kind of thing. We believe, in other words, that God is intimately and personally related to us. That he is our provider, right? The idea of a father God is actually fairly radical in comparison to the beliefs of many of the world's major religions. And here's why it matters so much. Because if God is our father, not just existing, not just a creator, but God is our father, and that means that God bears some kind of responsibility for raising us right. In all sorts of ways, like my own children reflect my character and my values. Sometimes that's good for them and sometimes it's not. They reflect or they choose not to reflect Meredith's love of Harry Potter, right? Their health and their growth are important to both of us, to both Meredith and myself. And in fact, like... They are necessary for our identification as parents in the first place, right? Like, I am a father because I have or have had children. When we say God is father, what we're saying is that we believe he loves us and that he can be fully, like, invested in us. He's tied to us. But we're also saying that he can't be, and I hear me here because this is, like, kind of a, maybe an upsetting thing for me to say out loud, but I think there's truth to it here, that he can't be fully who he says that he is without us. And we're also saying something here about who we are. We're saying that our humanity, the thing that makes us people, is tied in some ways to his paternity, to who he is, that we're connected. So to say God is father is to say something about how we think he feels about us is to say something about how uh, about the responsibility he has for us, and it's also to say something about our responsibility back to him. Like we are connected, and we need each other to be what we say we are. So where do we go from there? We have a, a God that exists. We have a God that's a Father. What comes next? Well, this is just one word, right? The, af- the third affirmation is that we believe in God the Father, Almighty, Almighty. There, in other words, there is no power equal to or superior to God, the God we're talking about, in the universe. Now, we don't think a ton about this one now, but this actually is a super important part of the creed in the early church. Because the early church exists in a world um, that um, is fairly committed in lots of places to dualism, right? Or to this belief that there are co-equal forces of good and evil in the world. And that those forces are co-equal and even kind of at war with each other. 
and that we're kind of caught in between. You may be familiar with this way of thinking. There's like a yin and yang aspect to it. There's like good, and there's bad. There's God and, and the devil, or whatever. And they're like, at war, people are stuck in the middle. This is not a Christian belief. Because the Christian belief is that there is no counterforce to God that is equal to him. Whatever opposes him, like, for example, the forces of death or decay in the world, those forces oppose him only for a while and kind of at his leisure, at his permission. And this is actually, that might sound weird, like why would a God allow these things? And we can have that conversation, it's going to come later. But, but that is significant, and we are addressing it partly through the Christian belief in resurrection, right? Like one of the reasons that Christians believe in resurrection is because we don't believe that death wins, right? If we believed that death or evil or, or darkness, if that those were co-equal with God, there'd be some question about like who the victor is. But part of our belief structure is that there is no question. Like death is a force now, but it won't always be. And so partly when we're saying that we believe in God the Father Almighty is we're saying that we believe that this God exists that he cares about us, and that he is powerful over and above any other thing that could threaten us or any other thing. It's, it's a way of saying that we're, like, to shift things. It's not a way of saying that we're backing the winning team, right, which may be a way that you've thought about faith before. But Christians wouldn't say we're backing the winning team. We'd say we're, like, agreeing to be on the only team. There isn't contest. We're choosing to take part. So, what about that final affirmation, like affirmation four? <clears throat> I believe in God the Father, almighty maker of heaven and earth. So we're saying that God not only exists, he's not only connected to human beings, he's not only all-powerful, that he is also the reason that everything that is here is here. God is essentially and profoundly creative in his nature, to be so. And specifically, that the force that he brings into existence is a force of life, a force of growth and change. Now, for like our Jewish forebears in this faith, this was actually the first of the creedal affirmations. If you look at the book of Genesis, right, the, old, the first book in the, in, the, in the Old Testament, it begins just like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And read this with me. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and it was evening, and it was morning. It was the first day. Now... There is a different kind of order of articulation here, but you can see three of the same four core beliefs from our discussion of this first part of the creed in this passage. At the beginning of the book of Genesis, God exists, God is almighty, and God is the maker. But there is a difference that we need to account for, which is that where Christians emphasize that God is father, the Torah emphasizes that God is good. More precisely, this passage shows us that goodness, that that goodness is tied into the things that God has made. If the light, think of it this way, if the light was not good, 
than it would not be. It's permitted to be because it is good. So the implication here is that all that is out, all that God has made embodies God's goodness. He's put his goodness into it. And if it wasn't there, it wouldn't be. The only stuff he keeps is the stuff that's good. It's probably a shorter way of saying all that. So the four affirmations in the first statement of the Apostles' Creed, God exists, he's Father, he's Almighty, and he's the maker of good things. That's, that is what we're being challenged here to say that we believe. But we kind of move past just understanding what this says. What does it mean to believe? How do you do that? How do you put weight on that set of ideas, right? Like, I don't, I'm confused. I was confused for the part of this week. Like, how do I live out that God is my father? The skeptic, after all, from earlier is still right, right? We can't prove any of these things to be true. So why is it important for us to lean on them anyway? Hufflepuffs, right? The internet tells me there are three things about them that are important. That they're loyal, that they're moral, and that they're true. <coughs> loyal, moral, and it's hard to say. Well, it was easier to write than it is to say out loud. Loyal, moral, and true. I think we're getting into their territory. It matters that we believe these things because these specific attributes of God make the world make Christian sense. Those beliefs make the world make Christian sense. They're a framework that explains what we see and feel when we practice that openness that we've talked about over the last few weeks. And they're also a reassurance that what we sense as goodness in this world really does matter. <clears throat> Here's what I mean. I realize how abstract this has all been, and I'm going to try and bring it home in these next few minutes. Here's why that matters. Every person, everywhere, everybody in this room, no matter the hardships that you face, no matter the injustices that you have experienced, you have touched goodness in your life. You felt it. You felt the warmth of like sunshine on your face, right? And you thought, that's not just warm, it's nice. You felt the rejuvenation of like rain in the summertime and thought like, this isn't just good for the plants to grow. This is like good somehow. You've been satisfied by a delicious meal. Not just like filled up so you can go do a task like a robot, but like satisfied by you smiled at a stranger's dog, probably, and the guest. You laughed at like a baby, baby making like googly eyes at you, like across a room or a restaurant or on an airplane. You've been overwhelmed by the emotions of a crush. <clears throat> you felt the comfort of being loved. You've laughed with a friend, you've cried with a song or a poem or a movie. 
no matter how skeptical we can be in our heads, right? My point is this, that in our hearts we felt something that's more. We felt something that's more in the world than just the biological facts of the matter. But what is all that stuff? Why is it happening? Why is it there? What does it mean to have those extra feelings in the world that you're in? Now, it's true, and I'm not going to minimize this. There are clinical answers to those questions. And it may be that some of those, like, or those answers satisfy you. And if, if that's true for you, if you're satisfied by like, uh, you know, by like, this is what's happening when the dopamine's released in the brain, answer to these questions, I want you to know, one, that's totally okay. But I would stop short, and I would ask you to stop short of saying that those answers are satisfying. If there is a God, and if that God is good, there is a moral order to the world that he, by his nature, must have put there. And I think that we sense that moral order. And I think part of Christian practice, to finally get around to where I was headed with all this, I'm, this sermon is not as good <coughs> teaching as it was in the writing of the part of the <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> to get around, thank you. To get around to it, I think part of Christian practice is deciding to be loyal to that feeling of good and that moral order that you sense in the world. Deciding to be loyal to it. To chase that thing wherever it goes. To open ourselves up with humility and reverence to what and to who it reveals. One of my very favorite books in the Bible, which Dante referenced earlier, is 1 John. And it's short, and I recommend that you read it and read it often. It's an easy one, and it's a good one. In the fourth chapter, John writes this to a small church of believers, and it's in your program there. He writes, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. John writes that anyone who knows what love is, whether they know it or not, has been touched by God. And he says that the Christian story which he believes with all of himself, which he has staked his very life on to proclaim, which will kill him. That the Christian story is the perfect picture of deepest affection. In this story, God sends what is most precious to him in order to give what is most precious to us. Through his son, we have atonement and forgiveness, but the wonder of wonders 
the thing that he brings up first here is the promise of life. He's shown us this truest version of love. And in doing so, he's given us a model to follow, right? It says here, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. So, the question I've been wrestling with all week is, how do we move the first statements of the creed from just stuff that we're wrestling with and thinking about and like debating with other people into something that we're living? And this is the answer that I've come up with, whether it's satisfying or not, remains to be seen. But this is how I actually think we put weight on our beliefs. We live out the example that we are saying God has set out for us. If he exists, if he's made everything, if he is almighty, and if he is our good father, then what other way could there be to live in this world other than in imitation of that good, almighty, existing, perfect creator, father's love? When we do that, when you love at great cost to yourself, which you have done, when you love at great cost to yourself, you're testing out your belief in who God is. When, when you embrace your own creativity, right, you're taking a chance that this is really what's healthy and right in the world for people, that it's a reflection of God and his nature. When you choose to actually be present with others, not in a mechanical way, not in a way that's just built around your obligations, but to choose to put yourself second for a minute and sit and be present with somebody else. When you make that choice to listen to them, to invest yourself in their well-being and their growth, you are declaring that your own Father in heaven has shown you the right way to be. That way of being doesn't make any sense unless it's a reflection of how everything's meant to be. So when you live that way, when you live at great cost, when you live when you choose creatively or creativity, when you when you choose selflessness and other centeredness, you're putting real weight in your life on who you believe God to be. And if those ways of living pay off, right? Like if they're rewarded, if you feel more in tune with who you believe you are when you're in them, then one of the conclusions you have an opportunity to draw is that that may actually be who God is. Now, it may be that we're all wrong about all this stuff. It may be that I'm wrong about all this stuff. It may be that everything in the world is, is some mix of fortunate chance and then inevitable chaos and then a lot of mechanisms we've invented to try and not think too hard about how bad things are. And if that's true, if we're all wrong, then yes, we're all living the wrong way. Like, living the way I just described is foolish. Like, by all means, go out and, like, eat until you're full, build until you're satisfied, like, accumulate until you, I don't know, when you would ever have enough. But go out and do those things. But I think where I'd like to close is by saying that, like, no matter what, like, you can't dodge this decision. And I think that in the end, the decision that you make about how you're going to live is one that you tend to make more with your heart than it is one that you make with your head. 
when we declare that we believe in God the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, like, it doesn't really matter as much what we think about that. It doesn't have to merely be words coming out of our mouth. I think that that statement and that belief can, can be a way of summarizing who we are aspiring to be. I want to be a child under God's shelter, eager to reflect and enjoy his goodness. That's the kind of person I want to be. And when I say those words in the creed, I'm not just saying, yes, I know it. What I'm saying is I want to live it. 